Welcome to the LA Realtor Podcast. I'm Paul with Great Builds. And I'm Sarah with Glen Oaks Escrow. And we're getting to know the industry one conversation at a time. Welcome to the show, everybody. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Paul. Uh, so do you remember when I tried to explain inflation to you a couple weeks ago? I do. Did it stick? Something about milk. No. It did not stick. It didn't. Do you still notice that prices are going up or... Yeah, I've noticed that. Do you, I don't know what any of that means still. Do you buy so. things? Do you... Sometimes. <laughs> okay. I mostly just put it in an Amazon cart and then it appears at my house. I don't oh. know. It's, it's very convenient. Maybe inflation doesn't affect that. Okay. Maybe it doesn't affect me. Wouldn't that Maybe. be nice? Anywho, who's, who's our guest today? Oh man, we got a great guest on today. I'm very excited because today <laughs> we have on the COO of Pango Group, which is the parent company of Glen Oaks Escrow, where I hail from. Mm. And um, I've worked with Joe for the last, I think, almost seven years. It'll be seven years at the end of this year. Lucky and seven. Lucky seven. And um, Joe is just a wealth of knowledge in our industry, especially when it comes to anything that has to do with data. He absolutely... He's a data extravaganza no, he's a, um, leader, I like to it. call it. Let's just say it, data nerd. He's a data, data nerd. nerd. Yeah, but in the best way possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, so he knows welcome, his stuff. Welcome, welcome to the show, Joe. Welcome, Joe Curtis. <laughs> Thank you. Paul and Sarah, thanks for having me. COO, right? Chief Operating Officer, Pango Group. That's I think that's one step below CEO. Not bad? It's Yeah, it feels like three steps or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Around all the operations, the CEO, I'm the analytical practitioner, right? The integrator. Oh, the, the integrator. Yeah. Visionary integrator. You're, you're starting to speak entrepreneur language. What, (laughs) uh, what does a CEO do? You've been doing it for 10 years. Have you figured out what you're supposed to do? No, I, I, if you can, if you can let me know, I would would be super grateful. He's great at using milk. He's great at using milk um, as an example. Sarah, if you figured out how inflation, not to have inflation affect you, like I'm super interested in that. Yeah, let's, that should be a podcast. Yeah. So I, the, Chief operating officer is is a lot of the times a catch-all for does everything to make things happen. So I, I kind of view my job, not in title, but in, in function and saying like, hey, if we want to get from point A to point B, I'll be the one creating the plan and helping drive to get there. Telling us where we need to stop and get gas, recharge, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever trip analogy you want to use. But yeah. Awesome. And Pango, tell us a little bit about Pango. Is it an escrow company? Is it a holding company? What is it? Yeah. So Pango Group is a collection of real estate service companies. And so Pango is kind of the umbrella and we are primarily in the escrow business in California. And so we have several escrow brands, Glen Oaks being our largest, and we've done it through partnerships, which is why you get multiple brands. And yeah, it's been doing it for 25 years. I've been with a company for 10, almost 10. Yeah. So it's been great. Okay, I think most agents will will know what escrow means yeah. and escrow is. Escrow. But is is there anything <laughs> about escrow that you'd like to share with us? Kind of uh, secrets in plain sight. What what do we need to know that maybe some agents don't know about it, or how to find a good escrow agent? And why or, is it important to choose who you're working with? Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so. When I talk to people not in the real estate business, you're at a dinner party and you say like, what do you do? And you're like, I run an escrow company. And then the second question they ask is like an escort company. And you're like, no, 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 escrow. Because I have to be, you have to enunciate. Let's talk about the other one. So escrow company. And what I often find myself like describing is like, we do the job that attorneys do on the East Coast to manage, Mm -hmm. making sure that all the parties in the transaction get to a point where you can close successfully. Right. 
And so you have this really large transaction. So if you're a real estate agent and you, you're representing the purchase, right, for a buyer or a seller of the sale. And what I think the hidden in plain sight is, is the quality of people. And so the way that you describe that using the attorney analogy is, do you want somebody that is a flat fee, $50 an hour attorney, if you're handling like the biggest purchases of your life? Or do you want like the expert $700 attorney, right? That's got years and years and years of experience. Well, typically they'll say like, well, I don't want the cheap one, but $700 an hour sounds expensive. So we're kind of that, we're the $350 hour attorney that does a really, really good job <laughs> and can help you get there. And it's the really the quality of the people and the experience because every transaction is a little bit different. And so problem solving, proactive problem solving and communication are some of, everybody says customer service. Like what that actually is, is proactive problem solving and communication on what's happening with all of the various parties in the transaction. Not just the real estate agent, but the lender, the title company, the buyer, the seller, homeward, everyone. Yeah. And if you know, and I imagine you do, why is it that we have escrow in California? What I think legally you have to do a transaction through escrow. Is that right? What, what's, the, what's the background to that? Do you know? Yeah. So escrow, well, it's called different things in different areas, right? But at the, at the end of the day, it is human nature that creates the necessity for our business to be in existence. And so if you, Paul, are a buyer and Sarah is a seller, you don't know each other, but you're putting something at stake, right? You're putting an earnest money deposit in. And so you don't know each other well enough. And so there's not really full trust. So you're not going to just give Sarah you know, $30,000 deposit and hope things go well. So what you need is you need a neutral third party to be an intermediary between the two negotiating parties so that says, hey, Paul, you said you were going to do this, right? And you have a contract and Sarah, you said you were going to do this. And at the end of the day, we settle the account. So effectively what we do is trust accounting. Trust accounting means holding other people's money in trust so that you have this 30 36 day transaction. Sometimes it's a five day all cash. Sometimes it's whatever, however long the escrow period is, that's when we're holding money because you, Paul, might not 100% with good reason trust Sarah, who you don't know who is selling her house. And so that's why it exists. And that function, like that actual function, happens pretty much the same across the country. Now, the, the people that do it and who does it, like, varies from area to area, right? And sometimes it's a real estate attorney or a fee attorney in Georgia. Sometimes it's a titled company in Texas that does the closing and you're, they're holding the money and they're issuing the title insurance policy. So a lot of the times their title and escrow are together. But the core function of what escrow is, is what we just talked about, which is that holding those funds, making sure everything happens so that you can close successfully. Frankly, I'm just offended Paul doesn't trust me to give me $30,000. I know, I know. So right. that's, that's all I heard was what could, what he doesn't could trust go me. Wrong? I mean, You're the go last wrong? person I'd give $30,000. You have no idea but how to buy. inflation doesn't affect me. <laughs> I'm such a, uh, yeah, I'm like a CD. I've heard of those. It might be a good idea to give her $30,000 and inflation doesn't affect her. What what am I going to get back? Yeah. Oh boy. All right. I mean, look, escrow, if if you start really thinking about it now that we're kind of delving into it, like it's a pretty good deal. It's an independent third party that's kind of going to do all the work for you to make sure that both parties do what they say they were going to do in the contract and it holds money and it makes sure the loan comes in and all the documents happen and records like... I who else would do that? If escrow, it's not like, stressful at like, all. Like what a great service, you know, now mm-hmm. that I think about it, who yeah. the hell 
else would do that? Like, yeah. it's nice that somebody, you can outsource that. It's somebody that's like shepherding the transaction yeah. from start to finish once you get into contract. Yeah. And it's, mm. and it's, and what, what is difficult about selling it, right? Is that if you're a buyer, a seller, what you, like the ideal situation is that they basically don't know you exist and everything goes smoothly. Yeah. Right. Like it's a behind the scenes thing that if it's like, it's like plumbing, right? Like, or, or your <laughs> internet, like, it's like, you just want your internet to work and it's working. It's great. And it's fast. And I don't even notice, but when it doesn't work, it's like, things are terrible. Right. You, you guys have probably never heard of this. And so I'll, 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 I'll give you this idea, but it's almost like having a quarterback for your <laughs> transaction. So if you, you can use that now, if, you, if you'd like. <laughs> Shepherd. Well, you know, they always say like an, an easy escrow is unmemorable uh, and yeah. because you don't have to worry about the stress of it. Yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So what makes a good escrow officer? I mean, obviously they have to be detail oriented, oh. communicative. What, what else? Escrow people are the best people <laughs> on the planet, in my yeah. opinion. And the reason I say that is because there's some of the hardest working, most creative problem solving people out there. So a great escrow officer is going to have a variety of skills. They're going to have the ability to kind of be patient and listen and handle lots of emotion <laughs> with very little emotion back. They're going to have a great detail orientation around and care about like they have these little things that they birth and they get them all the way to gestation and then they let them go and they have, and then it's on repeat. And so a uh, high level of attention to detail, really, really high emotional, like IQ in terms of how to interact with different parties and showing up for different people in different ways, like for like a chameleon. And then being so organized to be able to say, okay, here's the waterfall of things that happen. I need to be proactive. If this thing comes up, I know that it's going to affect the transaction in two weeks time. And if we don't get on top of this and I'm not like chasing after these things and making sure that they happen, then something could go wrong. And so it's being able to set that up in a, in an organized way. So it's cool. There, and the, and the creative problem solving that you sometimes see to get things done within a short time frame is unlike any other business I've been in. Yeah. Makes sense. What? <laughs> You have a question? No, I was gonna. I wanted to go into um, the things to look out for as an agent um, in mm. escrow, <laughs> like wire fraud and um, yes. you know the things that are just very prominent in the industry right now as technology gets yeah. increasingly more advanced. Yeah, the bad guys have figured out where the money is, <laughs> and it's the money houses. is in these transactions where you're wiring right earnest money deposits. And seller proceeds. Seller proceeds oftentimes can be hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. And so they've gotten really good through social engineering, which basically means you're interacting. And if you're a real estate agent and you have a Hotmail account, please get a better email <laughs> account. And they, through some type of social engineering, get access to these conversations. And this happens all the time, more often than you think, because you're clicking a link that you might think is your bank and it's actually a hacker. And they insert themselves in a conversation at the point where they're we're giving wire instructions. And so the thing that you really need to look out for is changed wire instructions that you think are coming from your escrow officer. What we want to do, and so there's it, it's hard to prevent what we're talking about if you're not willing to have the conversation. So the easy way to prevent some of this wire fraud that we're doing is for us to have a phone call with the buyer, right? It is literally 
verbally communicating with the buyer. So just being really, really clear, talking to live people is really, really important. Just doing everything over email while it's convenient and fast, it is less secure. So you have to balance these two things, which is, do you want speed and convenience or do you want security, right? So the fastest things that happen will tend to be less secure, right? The most secure things will be probably slower, right? And so we're constantly trying to balance that speed versus security because we want things now. We want to move it. We want to go. We want to go. Get the thing done. Get it done. Get it done. And in that, there sometimes can be some errors that get made or overlooked that are very, if you go back and look at it and be like, hey, that actually wasn't the email from the thing because they replaced Glenn Oaks escrow and they put two S's on the end. But I didn't catch that because we were going so fast. And so sometimes we need to kind of just be cognizant of that balance between speed and security. Yeah, like a hypervigilance around anything having to do with money. Yeah. And like you were saying with Hotmail, like a lot of email accounts nowadays have two-factor authentication, right? So like... Do two-factor authentication. I know and it's have a your pain. Clients I know it. you do not like getting the code on your phone and putting it in. I get it. But when you have to look at a buyer that just lost $75,000 because your email got hacked... You're that making me sucks. feel bad about my Hotmail account. <laughs> Maybe Hotmail's come my... further than I'm we think. I'm not Hotmail shaming you. It could be AOL. <laughs> no. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you have an AOL oh, I have AOL. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> could be Yahoo. It's okay. You know, it's, maybe it's not. Ancient. I don't know. It's ancient. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, as long as you do the McAfee virus, uh, <laughs> yeah. what is it? The Norton. 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 Yeah. Oh, it man. helps. It's something. Yeah. Is it? It is. Yeah. Well, you could so, yeah. probably get it for free. Wire fraud's but... a thing. Balance speed versus security and be patient with those people that are asking you to jump through hoops that seem inconvenient. That would be my, my like ask that. to the real estate community. <laughs> no, that's yeah. smart. That's, that's a good point. You don't, sure. you don't want to be that person that it happened to happen to. No. Are we ever going to see the days where people are going to pay for their transactions with crypto or smart contracts or NFTs or any of that other fun well, stuff out I mean, there? Good question, Paul. I think... <laughs> So in one respect, the answer to that is already yes, right? I mean, we've, we've as a company have done several crypto to cash transactions where somebody, buyers come in and used Bitcoin, primarily Bitcoin, to purchase real estate. So we've seen that. We've seen the tokenization of properties. You've seen a couple in Florida uh, by a company through, by the name of Proppy that has done that. I think the Real question is, so, so like, can you mechanically do it? The answer today, the answer to that is yes, right? What are the market forces that would create that to become more common, right? So there's this whole right. idea of like, you got to get through this initial phase where it's just interesting and it's an outlier, which it is today. And then you have to understand, okay, well, how does this then get into the kind of like mainstream where... 25% of the transactions are happening. I mean, we do one a year. But we talk to about 100 people that are interested. Right. right? And the main issue is it's harder. <laughs> like it's, it's more cumbersome. It is, it's more difficult than it is to use cash. And it's expensive, right? Um, yeah. Now, the conversion. Yeah. But interest and whatnot. If you, if you bought Bitcoin at $4, and now it's 16 or it was 60 last year, right? And you have 100 or 300 or 3,000 coins, like you're a bazillionaire 
it's like, yeah. okay, well, I can take some of this cash. I actually don't really care about the gas fees or the costs. Like, I'm just going to do it because I've made this windfall. Like, I, I think that's less and less likely. So I think you're going to see less and less transactions until you can take some of the friction out of it. The other part is, you know, you, you were talking about, Paul, I think smart contracts. Again, the, the, the mechanism exists today for that to happen. The problem is you have an antiquated county, like land record system, right? Where you still go and file things down at the county courthouse and you hold all those records. And that is the record that matters, right? That's what title insurance companies are insuring on, not a decentralized ledger, right? You could do it in parallel. But I think that in the US, I think that if that was going to happen, I think that you would see that happen in a smaller country that has like Sweden or the United Arab Emirates, or I think it would be a great model in somewhere in a country in Africa where they have really poor land records, right? And you could say, hey, we're going to put all of the country's land records because you have a country that's the size of Pennsylvania, right? In West Africa, you could probably do that with a lot less friction, like to to put the United States land record on a blockchain <laughs> with all of the county courthouses, and all those employees and all of the different various interests to be able to kind of migrate that way, I think is a hill that is probably too big to climb in the next 10 years. That's my view. Yeah. People will disagree with me. Don't, don't hate me because I said it, but I'm just... I'm... <laughs> well, we'll put it on microfiche first. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll take baby yeah. steps. Exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. Should we talk about... Let's talk about data. Data nerds. Joe loves data. Let's do it. I love data. Joe understands data very well. He is our resident data... What do you like to be called? Nerd or geek? Geek. I prefer geek. Fish, geek. Aficionado. Data geek. Yes. He is, he is all things data. So we have Altos Market Trend Reports just as one tool that we yep. um, provide to agents. Can you tell us why, maybe not that specifically, but also that, why looking at market trend data is so important? Why looking at trends in the market in general is so important and how realtors can use that to their advantage? Yeah. So, I mean, data is just data, right? It's just like, it's points of information. And what I like about data is that if you are a student of it, over time, it can help you articulate a story and help. And ultimately, data is hopefully used to be able to be predictive, meaning like, hey, I've noticed this trend, as you've said, market trend over this period of time. I've noticed when this happens, then this follows shortly. So there's maybe some correlation, right? And so if that were the case, then maybe we want to make this decision in our personal life or about buying a piece of real estate or, or that. So, I mean, I think data is really there to like help tell a story and then help you make this like informed decision. Now you have to say they're only informed decisions, right? Like they're just informed decisions and you can get into the analysis paralysis and you can look at all the, you can look at everything and then never make a decision. Um, and so I like the balance of collecting just enough data to make you dangerous, meaning to make you have the ability to have confidence in your decision, but not having so much that you get mired in it. And then you're actually not doing anything in real life with it. Right. right? And so I really, really like Altos research. I've been looking at that data set for over 10 years. I've worked really closely with Mike Simonson. I've actually been on his podcast and it's a great data set. And I think it's more and more adopted. Everybody used to say, oh, I need comps. Like you need to tell me sold information. 
And the thing that I like about the Altos research database for real estate is that it's actually active. It's the stuff that's going on today. Because if I mm. take sold data, so if I want to look at everything that's sold in October or November this last week, that is a reflection of all of the activities that happened or everything that got into contract 45 days before that. Yeah. Right. Right. So in reality, that articulates the sentiment of a buyer 45 days ago. Well, you and I both know that 45 days ago is different than today, right? Because the Fed raised the interest rates twice in that 45 days. So that buyer today is a different buyer. And so when you look at active market data, and that's why they call it market trend data is because you're looking at week over week, what is actually on the market today. And then you can actually draw some cool information from that. So... So what kind of what kind of data are we talking about? Sales and prices and transaction data, yeah. inventory data. What what are you seeing that's really interesting to you? Okay, so I look at a couple of things, and I do this on a county level because it gives you a macro, and then I compare it to kind of what we're doing. And so one of the examples is I'll look at let's say Los Angeles County, right? And I want to know everybody's talking about inventory. Mm-hmm. What's inventory doing? What's inventory doing? What's inventory doing? So I want to know what is going on with inventory, the active inventory, what is actually active on the market in any given day. And so that is what we can see. And if I look at LA, right, the whole county, and I'm looking at it right now, as of they update it once a week, we're sitting in this like 8,000, 100, 8,200 active listings last week, right? Mm-hmm. That's the highest it's been since 2020. It was about there in, I'm looking at June, 2020, right? So it's we're the highest we've been in, in a couple, of, but we've kind of peaked off for the season. I don't think we're going to get any higher this season in LA County, right? And that's lower than it was in 2019. So everybody's been talking about inventory, inventory. It's going up. There's all this inventory. Well, there is, but you have to take it in context of what it's historically been. If you look at the end of last year, we were at 3,500 properties. Now we're at 8,000 or 8,200. That's a lot relative, right. but 3,500 properties was like nothing. I mean, the average days on market in California at that time was like eight, <laughs> like, right. which, yeah. is, which is insane. If you've been in the Not real estate healthy. business a while, like that's an insane number, a single digit days on market right. for a sustained period of time. The other thing that I like to look at is like, hey, of the properties that are currently on the market, what percentage has taken a price decrease? Like that's mm-hmm. another great like piece of data. And you can see, is that is that moving up? So I could say, hey, we're looking at that number today, or are we looking at that number over time? And if you look at that number over time, let's go back to Los Angeles County, right? It's a lot higher today than it has been. And I think it's an indicator of what's happening macro in the market, right? So right now in LA County, there's a total 37, 38% of the properties that are currently on the market have taken a price decrease, right? If I go back a year, if I go back six months, eight months, that number is 12%. Right. Yeah, it's spiked, obviously. So for good, it's for going good up because money's getting more. So there's all the reasons that you can talk about getting money more expensive. Is then you say, well, where do we think that that's going? And I think those are the conversations that are helpful to talk with buyers and sellers about how you're going to purchase price your home, like what your goals are, how you're going to be approaching your offers. And so I think all of this stuff matters. And I think that educating for us, like we give this stuff away for free because we think a better educated customer, you know, a more well-educated or more well-informed customer is a better customer. 
If you're an agent, you got to be armed with this information. It's going to make yeah. you more valuable as a resource to your, your client. It's totally. going to make those conversations easier. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, and I've asked this before, uh, and I know it's a tough question, but you've been in the market for, for a little while. So you've been through a cycle or two here. Uh, get out your crystal ball. Uh, what do you think <laughs> we're in for for the next year or two? You want me to predict the future? I, I would. So I'm not an economist, nor do I pretend to play one on the internet or on you, podcasts. But yep. you're looking at trends, Joe. But I look at trends. So, so you're the guy. You're the student. And you're so I, so I think that, well, I think we're going to get from a reflection standpoint in, in, in a recession over the next year. I, th- so what that does, if you have, and if you, if inflation continues to rise, you have to increase interest rates. The Fed will do that. They've said that they're going to do that. And so then the real question is like, how long does that last? Like, so there was some news this last week that says, hey, the consumer, you know, it looks like it's easing a little bit. Okay, so that's one data point. So if that continues and it's saying like, yeah, it's getting better, it's getting better, it's getting better, then I think that the Fed will say, hey, we're going to back off on the interest rate hikes, potentially even lower them. But that has to be sustained for a long period of time. And I don't see anything in the macro economy that will really help drive that down outside of interest rate hikes. So I think that we need to kind of settle into this. And I think that we'll be here for 12 months or so. My hope is, and I can be hopeful, right, is that we'll see the market velocity, meaning the number of transactions in the market pick up the second half of next year. I think it'll be, I think a big indicator that I will be personally looking for and I'm telling my team about is, listen, we are where we are from a seasonality standpoint. So every year you sell, real estate sells less homes in December and January than they do in June and July, right? Because there's this seasonality of a summer selling season, you sell less homes, so market velocity, so you have low, high. So there's a natural built-in seasonality, right? We're going into that right now. So what will be really, really interesting to look at the data is what is happening in March, right? So everybody knows after the Super Bowl, people start to get serious about selling their house. I don't know why the Super Bowl is it, but like, so start to look what is happening in March. And I think that that will be either above expectation, at expectation or below expectation, right? In terms of seasonality, you can look at what you've done and you can say, okay, we normally do this in the first quarter. In the second quarter, we expect it to rise on a seasonal basis to this. And it's either going to be above, at, or below that. And I think where that lands will kind of give us an indicator of what's going to happen the rest of the year. Interesting. Yeah, I think that, um, tell me if you would agree with this, I think that it's the shock that kind of freezes the market. Mm. When interest rates start going up, Mm -hmm. everyone's in shock, right? And then when interest rates stop going up, and then everybody thinks of this, let's say, in mid-next year as the new normal. Interest rates are just 6 to 7%. Maybe prices came down a bit to match that. And they, they sort of forget about, start to forget about 3% interest rates, and it becomes the new normal, and they start to think, Hey, look, okay, interest rates are higher, but now I could get 10 or 20% off a house from where it was, you know, a year or two ago. And then transactions start to happen. It's the delta, it's the change, the shock that creates the freeze up. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I think that's at the beginning, right? Because you have like this, the transactions take a while to close. And so if I'm selling my house today and I just saw my neighbor close on their house and it was $1.5 million, right? For like a three bedroom house. And I'm trying to list mine and my real estate agent's like, dude, you're not going to get that. I'm going to be like, why not? My neighbor just did. So there's some time, there's some psychology where, right. where sellers will have to understand that I'd be like, and the realtor is going to be like, okay, well, we'll list it for one five. 
like, let's try, but in two weeks, I'm going to come back to you and we're going to have to talk about a price reduction. And that's where you see that percentage of price reduction just dropped, which is why I think that data is really helpful. But like, Hey, like a year ago, 14% of the properties like on the market took a decrease right now. It's 40%. Do you want to be yeah. in that 40% or do you want to sell your house? Let's talk about what that's going to take. Like what's the right. cost of be- this being on the market for nine months versus two months? Do you know what I mean? Like what's that worth to you? And using that data to have a conversation 100%. with your um, seller is like amazing. Yeah. Very useful. And it's, and it's not saying like, you have to do this. It's just walking them down the path and saying like, here, I'm just presenting you information. You're the ultimate decision maker, right? I'm just going to draw help draw conclusions of what likely scenarios will happen based on the information I'm giving you. Now you just make the decision. Do you want to, do you want to list for one five or do you want to list for one three? Can you afford to list for one three? Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. It is very interesting, the uh, consumer psychology, because mm-hmm. I still hear people saying they're waiting for prices to crash and the bubble to burst. And I'm like, this is not 2007, 2008. And people don't understand the difference. And I think it's starting to wear off. And I think agents have done a really good job of educating consumers yeah. on why it's not the same situation. There yeah. isn't the predatory lending situation that was happening like back then. So that's definitely like seems to be easing that. Sarah, um, that's a great point. Because this this time around, it's not a break in the financial system that affected directly, right, lending for homes. I mean, that's, I mean, it really was an issue in yeah. 2008 and then the fallout after that, right? This time, I think that there's more macro things going on, right? Yeah. That we're just now getting impacted. And there's, gosh, there's really two things. We get so focused on price right? Hey, what's, what's my house worth? What's my house worth? What's my house worth? I'm always saying like, it actually doesn't matter what your house is worth unless you're need to borrow against it or you're selling it. Right. Yeah. Other than that, it doesn't matter. Right. Until those two, those are like trigger points when it then does matter. Right. So there is home prices, but there's also market velocity, meaning like the number of homes that are selling. Right. And I think that is something that, that has slowed down greatly that people aren't paying attention to because all they're worried about is inventory or prices, mm-hmm. right? Well, the inventory last year was really low, but you know how many houses were turning over? Like an insane amount, an mm-hmm. insane amount of houses were turning over, like record numbers, right? Our company had record numbers. Every, everybody in the industry, especially in Southern California, record numbers, yeah. right? And right now that's slowed. That market velocity is slowed. And that is the thing that I think has an impact on the willingness of people to sell, how many transactions are happening. Because people yeah. have been so focused on inventory and they're like, oh, inventory is going up. And then like, which is good. Like we need inventory to go up. It's been an issue. Right. right? And, but that market velocity, that slowing does have an impact on our business on a much bigger, more profound way than, than prices. Right. Yeah. Sellers aren't in a desperate situation necessarily. So I'll, some of them are just pulling their listings. Some of them are just saying, you know what? I don't know that. where I'm going to go because right. I'm locked in at a 3% rate. Right. I don't want to go pay 7% somewhere else. I don't actually need to sell. I was just going to do it if I wanted to get a different property or something to that effect. It's not like they're upside down on a loan. Totally. You know, that's not so common. So right? you need to look for areas or triggers on what is creating transactions. Yeah. Because the market is no longer creating transactions right? It used to be that I could get an investor, they come in and they're going to offer you something. You're like, this deal is so good. I got to sell it. Like, I'll go find something else. Like, it's fine. Like, I'm going to make a lot of money on here. Like that doesn't exist, right? So we're not creating transactions out of nothing. So what are the areas that you know, right? Create transactions. 
I mean, and I hate to say it, but you're going to look at things like probate. Yeah, divorce. If somebody passes away and there's a home, like that's got to go. That's got to go through probably some type of sale. A job right? change. A job change. Job change and moving. Like yeah, relocation moving. is another. One. So yeah. look, those are the types of like areas. If I'm an agent, that I want to mm-hmm. kind of like at least start exploring because regardless of what's going on, there's going to be then transactions, right? So yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause like, I agree with you guys that it's not like 2008 this time around yeah. for, for the obvious reasons, but like part of me thinks that by having the interest rate be so low in the last, whatever, couple of years, three, four, oh. five, six years in and of itself, that created a bubble environment, right? If you give people free money, they're going to go out and spend, spend, spend by free money. I, I'm thinking low interest rates. So even though it's different than 2008, for sure, like it, that created the bubble. And so I, I do think prices might've been artificially inflated and needed to come down a bit. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the other thing that you got to take into consideration, Paul, is like how much money we printed post COVID. Yeah. All from of us. Infusion of cash. I mean, that doesn't even have to do with interest rates. Like interest rates is right. just monetary policy, right? Like we're going to keep it low. So money's cheap and we get cash moving and then you print trillions of dollars and you just dump it into the economy. I think that's part of the reason why inflation is still going up is we've dumped so much cash into the economy and it hasn't flushed itself out yet. So that's why people aren't feeling it. And like 7% interest rates, $7 gas, who cares? I'm still buying a like Ford, like Toyota Raptor or Ford Raptor. You're like (laughs) seeing more Raptors rolling around. I want one. Is that a car? It's a truck. It's a beautiful, beautiful truck. It is a beautiful truck. Hmm. Well, look, that and supply and demand. We haven't built enough. Like there's a lot of things that go into this, but it's funny. So I guess last question, I'm kind of interested in your your sort of take on this. You mentioned, I think before we went on that (laughs) real estate is a cyclical business. Yeah. And I used to say that, you know, I've been in real estate for 25 years and my joke sort of was not really that funny, but my joke was if you're a lawyer, you can be a lawyer for life. You're an accountant. You can kind of be an accountant for life. If you're in real estate, those ups send you way up and you're flying high and your business is great. And then just it crashes down and you don't know what to do with yourself. There's no transactions to be had. So that was my thinking. It's fun, funny, weird, odd to be in real estate. What's your take on this whole cyclical thing? So I think it's compounded in real estate for a couple of reasons. So the first is we've already kind of talked about, you have an annual cycle, right? You're going to make less money in the winter than you do in the summer. Yeah. So there's this built-in annual cycle, right? Then you have like the bigger cycles, like the 2008, the recession, the housing, and that you have little, whatever you want to call them, like bubbles here, bubbles there, area, like times of good times and times of feast and famine, right? Like you have, you have that, that's just natural in the market because of the number of transactions that happen, right? And so you have those, you have the bigger cycle and then you have the annual cycle. And then on top of that, real estate, you eat what you kill. It's a hundred percent commission game, right? So when it's down, it's not like you have a base salary that I'm just kind of hanging out. Well, Redfin does, and they're doing a different model, right? But (laughs) But, but that's, that I think exacerbates that feeling that people have. And so having somebody that's always been in sales, I work a lot with folks on like financial, like their own, like I'm not a financial planner, but everybody should have a financial plan and be able to manage variable income. And I think it's the variable income that's caused by commission only, annual cyclicality, and then macro cyclicality that just wreaks havoc on people. And the, and the primary reason it wreaks havoc on people is because they don't spend enough time thinking about having a financial plan with variable income. Yeah. Mm. 
Good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Good point. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Joe, thank you so much. I mean, we we started with escrow, but we got into some heavy, complicated topics. I'm not sure. I'm not sure people want to be real estate agents anymore after hearing that. But uh, well, I will no, say it's it's one I'm of the kidding. greatest businesses on the planet, though. I mean, yeah, like that's the other agreed. thing about like real estate is like being in around homes, property, the market. Like, well, all these things right now we're in a period of hey, it feels like it doesn't look super, you know, sunny outside, right? Like it looks a little rainy. But at the end of the day, it's it's one of the best businesses to be in in my business, in my view. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Joe, before we let you go, tell me one thing. Oh, yeah. Because I found it fascinating. When you were a younger man, you were in the Peace Corps and you were a science teacher in Benin, <laughs> West Africa. Yes. I'd love to hear about that experience. I was. I was a physics and chemistry teacher. Yeah, I don't wow. think I knew that. That's Benin. pretty cool. Yeah. And I had to teach in French. Wow. You were really given back. You were given back to the world before wow. you really even uh, started your career, huh? Yeah, that. So that was the greatest. So that, you know, they say the Peace Corps is the hardest job you'll ever love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so true. It is literally the hardest thing I've ever done. So like everything after that is just like ah, market market crash. It's fine. That's right. What was so hard about it? Buying onions. Yeah. Going to the bathroom, finding a shower, probably buying onions. Oh my gosh. I would have to go to the lady. So I had this lady that would go to the market and I'd been there for like two years. Right. And there's this whole culture of like negotiation. So you have to like say all the things like, how's your family? How's your health? How's your son? How's your donkey? How's your whatever? Blah, 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 blah. So you go through the whole thing. Right. And then like, so I'm the white guy. And so there's what's called Yovo pricing, but I've been going there for two years. And so she looks up to me and she's like, yeah, so here the price is like 200 francs. Right. Where we always end up is like 50 francs, always, like 100% of the time. Yeah. Right? And I tried everything in my power. I'd, I'd come up and I'd be like, I wouldn't say anything. And I would just hand her 50 francs and be like, uh-huh. hand the, like, could you just hand me the, the onions? onions for 50? Nope, wouldn't, would not. She'd be like, no, not selling the onions today. I had to do it every single time. Like wow. she'd say 200 francs. And I'm like, no, I'm like, okay, five. Like you want to play the game? Fine, five francs. And she's she wow. like insulted, like, talking to the lady next door, like, can you believe this guy? He's trying to screw me again for onions, right? And then she'd be like, okay, fine, fine. Today for you, a hundred. I'm like, no, not a hundred, 50, 50. We've been doing this for two years. I just want it for 50. Please just give me 50. Like, I'm like 25, again, doing the whole thing. And it takes 20 minutes to buy onions. Oh so you want to know the hardest God. thing about living in West Africa wow. onions? buying onions. So there you go. Was it a staple? Wow. Was onions like a... You, a must no, have. it was everything. Making... Onions is like a metaphor for everything that you have to buy. Uh, nothing has a price tag on it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because I was going to say, you would have given up on onions a long time ago. You yeah, know? no, it's, uh, it's everything. Okay. But like I use gotcha. onions because I did actually really like this onion lady because she taught me mm. a lot of the language and she was like, but, but she was a pain Aww. in my ass That's every hilarious. time. I would even like send like kids to go buy my onions from her. And she'd be like, is this for the white guy? <laughs> She's like, no, no, <laughs> except for the white guy. And it's I'm like, like buying God. alcohol for a minor. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Is that for the is that for the kids outside? The twelve year old? No, 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 no. Were you? She had um, my number. What were the showers like? Was it exactly. A yeah. Okay. What do you mean showers? Right. <laughs> well, there's normally like a like a bucket of water that you have a plastic thing and then you dip it. Oh, self self uh yeah self managed showers. Yeah, got it. Got nice. It. Very cool. 
Man, that was fun. Thank you so that much. That was fun. Thank yeah. you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it was good to have you on. I love that story. Yeah. I mean, every every podcast needs an onion story. Uh, we did a podcast a couple weeks ago. We had a lemon story. So, mm. you know, this is working. We right, have a right, theme. Right. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for today's episode. I'm Paul with Great Builds. And I'm Sarah with Glen Oaks Escrow. And if you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at larealtorpod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.